we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. I have wrought my simple plan, if I give one hour of joy, to the boy who's half a man, or the man who's half a boy. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kian, and you join me on the porch on of the cabin in the woods on a early summer's evening. It's bright, shiny, sunny, all those good things, and I'm drinking... Nothing more exotic than a bud for this uh, trip into the wilds of South America because this episode is all about Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 novel, The Lost World. And that little poem I read out at the beginning is the famous or infamous uh, opening to that particular book. So The Lost World, an absolute classic of uh, of turn-of-the-century fiction and one which was um, extremely influential on me. It's one of my favourite books of all time, and I'm delighted to be able to talk about it on this episode. Um, I read it probably at just the right time. I was, I think I was about 13 when I first got my proper uh, proper uh, unedited and um, full, full-length version of this book. But I had, of course, come across versions of it earlier. Um, going back and doing some research this week, I found that probably the earliest version of this book that made an impression on me was the Ladybird Pickwick edition. Those were the books, um, if you're of a certain age you may remember uh, children's books that were versions of classic literature and they came with a, a tape, an old uh, tape cassette and um, they were famous books that were told in simple language with wonderful illustrations usually and uh, the tape then would uh, have a reading of the story often with uh, music and sound effects and stuff. And if you're someone who likes audio drama, which is having a bit of a comeback nowadays in, in the podcast world, listening to these uh, editions from the from from Ladybird from the early '80s really um, it really taps into that sort of audio drama thing that's happening now, and just kind of shows you that you know people were doing this a long time ago. And I guess anyone who's a fan of kind of '30s and '40s uh, old time radio stories will know all about that too. Now this edition. Uh, the Ladybird version of The Lost World had wonderful pictures. I'll put some in the show notes. Uh, hilariously, looking back now, I can see that w- whichever British artist um, put these together in the early 80s clearly had the actor Brian Blessed you know, uh, in mind as uh, the, the main character, Professor Challenger. He's a large, broad uh, fellow with it with a full beard. And my whole life, I've always wanted nothing more than a version of The Lost World with a Brian Blessed as Challenger. And funny now, looking back and finding this earliest version, uh, you know, in, in my own consciousness. And in fact, uh, that's p- perhaps where I got this idea from. Obviously, uh, Brian Blessed has uh, 
some of what he's been doing recently has not been great and has been a bit disappointing but I liked him as a kid primarily because he was really over the top hammy in uh, the Flash Gordon film from 1980 so and he's just a perfect he's a perfect look for a challenger even go back and read the original novel look at the original um, illustrations and it's, it's hard to see anybody else in the role um, one of the other early memories I have of this story was the 1992 film version uh, which in which Professor Challenger, the main character, is played by John Rhys-Davies, which, if you can't get a hold of Brian Blessed, John Rhys-Davies, you know, not a bad second, uh, not a bad second liner-upper, I'll say. Another, the other information I had about this uh, novel was a book about monsters, which I used to take out of my library in the city here, um, pretty much every week for at least a couple of years when I was little. And it was a book about monsters, both fictional and supposedly real. It had, it had vampires and werewolves and all sorts of things. I, de- I remember pages about the Black Shook and I remember pages about the Great Grey Man of Ben McDewey. So lots of these classic monster stories that um, have meant a lot to me for many years I probably came from this book. I cannot, for the life of me, think of the name for it, nor have I been able to track this down, but it had a chapter on monsters in fiction, and I distinctly remember a two-page spread about uh, The Lost World. And they 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 took the section where, which we'll get to, where the, the characters are having a campfire, and the campfire is interrupted by a dinosaur. Now, people, scholars of The Lost World tend to assume that Arthur Conan Doyle intended the this dinosaur to be either a megalosaurus or perhaps a small allosaurus based on the kind of dinosaurs that were known at the time the book was written but he uses a strange piece of description he describes the animal as being toad-faced which is kind of a weird way of thinking about a dinosaur given that now we tend to illustrate them with kind of long snout-like faces but I think somebody who wrote this dinosaur this monster book back in the day, misread that bit of characterization because they I distinctly remember them saying that on the plateau where they find the creatures, there were living dinosaurs and a giant monstrous toad. And and some poor illustrator uh, reading, you know, getting this information secondhand drew a, a reconstruction of the campfire scene where the explorers are being menaced not by an allosaurus or a megalosaurus, but some kind of giant swarthy toad with blood all over its mouth which though inaccurate or hilariously inaccurate to the book uh, was a, a very creepy image and made a big impression on me when I was younger. So this was pretty much the Ur adventure story for me and I think I definitely loved dinosaurs even before I knew about it but I think I can trace my obsession and my love for kind of Victorian, Victoriana and Edwardian adventure stories probably to this book. When I was very young, I didn't really understand much about history, but I knew from stories that there was a time and a place where, you know, it was the done thing for, you know, refined, intelligent gentlemen to get all dressed up and head off somewhere exciting and exotic, maybe a jungle or a desert, and go on an adventure, maybe, you know, hunting for ghosts or dinosaurs or some other kind of creatures that were exciting. And I I really do think that has always been a, a primal story kind of an overarching uh, trope for me and probably my ideas about this came largely from The Lost World. So like I said I eventually did get a copy of the book when I was about 13 um, at the beginning of secondary school and I have the copy here now it's a Puffin Classics edition published from well published in about 1990 let me see 1994 
and the, the illustrations are by Ian Newsham. Now they're pretty nice, they're not my favourite versions of the illustrations, but they're pretty good. They're a little bit sketchy, but they get the ideas across. Uh, yeah, so when we talk about books from this time, especially books of this genre, we get into the problem that they are often written with a sort of a colonialist or imperialist tone, and there's certainly a lot of that here. Doyle was definitely a pro-Empire guy, around about the time of the Boer War, in about 1900 and afterwards, he did tour the Empire, um, you know, delivering these stirring speeches, encouraging people to go and fight and, um, you know, keep up the Empire's end and all that sort of thing. Having said that, in this book, and we'll probably get into that more in the next episode, in this book, his attitude towards native peoples in, in exotic parts of the world, shall we say, is a little more mixed than you might expect. I mean, there's never any question that it isn't the right thing for, you know, tough, strong, young white fellows to go off into the tropics and just do as they please for their own good. That's never in question. However, his attitude towards the, the natives when he gets there is more interesting than some writers from this period as well. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Anyway, very briefly, my intentions for this episode, it might be one of a number of small sections or even episodes. Uh, firstly, we're going to talk about the influences behind the book. So what kind of a world was this novel written in? What kind of ideas were swirling around, both fictional and real, and what uh, caused this book to come to be? Secondly, uh, I'm going to go through the book myself. I haven't reread it in many years. Uh, I do. It is one that I think I know very well because I have read it so many times over the years, but I have not done so maybe in about 10 years, so perhaps I'll be surprised by a few elements of it. Um, if I if this, if this I enjoy doing this, I may go on further, do another section on uh, the film versions of the book um, and other, other versions of it as well. There's been lots of different film versions, and uh, I might even do a, an episode on the further adventures of the main character, Professor Challenger, because he did lots of other interesting things in his career besides what happens in The Lost World. And those books are very often forgotten. Um, a lot of fans, including myself in the past, don't like what Conan Doyle did with Challenger after this book. He took him in some very strange directions, and uh, we'll get to that in time. So The Lost World is from, it is pretty much the type specimen of what's called Lost World Literature. Uh, it's an it's sort of an example of what's sometimes called lost race literature, but it's all tied up in that whole turn of the century idea about um, fellows, almost always fellows, going off and having adventures in exotic places. So it, it fits in with this kind of hero archetype, the whole colonial adventure thing, which really does feed into other things like Indiana Jones and James Bond. And, you know, this stuff has never really gone away. Uh, it shows up even today in what... Uh, what some people call sort of like modern bro adventure TV. Now, this is not stuff I watch much of myself, but if you're aware of any of those programs where, again, usually fellas um, go somewhere interesting or exotic like Indiana Jones would or like James Bond would, and they have to uncover some mystery or go on a trip or an adventure to uncover something. So, you know, cryptozoology feeds into this. A lot of programs like the Hunting Bigfoot shows, they're all a bit like this. Uh, a lot of archaeological shows are like this. Stuff like Hunting Hitler, anything where there's a, a slightly weird element, you know, to what they're searching for. But the idea is that it almost doesn't matter what they're searching for. The point is that the guys get to show how manly they are by going somewhere and having an adventure. Um, and to get this idea across a little bit, 
I want to quote a small thing I found online. Now, this is by somebody named Sherry Mulch, and it appears to be just something something she wrote for university. It's uh, from December 1996. Can't find any other information about it, but I quite like this for laying out uh, the importance of the Lost World archetype in storytelling. So it's, uh, it's called Lost and Found in Maple Whiteland. And Maple Whiteland is, the, is what the explorers call the, the plateau in the Lost World where the prehistoric animals are found. So she says, The male ego and the fulfilment of man's own image of himself can be strong motivating forces behind his actions and behaviours. Society has created parameters used to define a real man, quote-unquote. Failing to live up to these specifications threatens one's masculinity and standing amongst one's peers. These expectations and requirements for manhood are constantly reinforced by society. The prevailing stereotype of the classic Marlboro Man, along with movie heroes such as James Bond, Indiana Jones and John Wayne, give the impression of the adventurous ladies' man who laughs in the face of danger and can do no wrong. Arthur Conan Doyle's tale of adventure, The Lost World, is an excellent example of the search for manhood and glorification of masculinity. What begins as a scientific expedition turns into a journey to satisfy the suppressed male instincts and desires for conquest. With the search for knowledge as an appropriate excuse, the explorers of Maple Whiteland are free to indulge in the arts of real men and live up to their idealised conceptions of their own greatness. It just struck me there how appropriate the name Maple Whiteland is. So let's do a quick um, a quick cover of what the basic plot is before we get into the background proper. So in The Lost World, four adventurers travel together to a place in South America where dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals uh, still exist. So we have four characters. We have Edward Malone, who's the narrator. He's an Irish-descended journalist. Uh, Conan Doyle himself had an Irish background in his family. If you go back a couple of generations, they were, I, I believe, Irish via via Edinburgh and Scotland. Uh, Malone, the young journalist, is your typical kind of boy's own hero. He's a young can-do fella. Um, the whole story gets started actually because he's trying to impress a woman and she tells him that she would only be impressed by a man who, uh, who, who his very nature would compel him to go and do something dangerous just because. Now again, there's interesting... Conan Doyle's take on this is interesting. On the one hand, he makes it very clear that this woman is being a bit silly and frivolous and ultimately she is shown to be hypocritical. Uh, but, you know, she lives in a world where... She can, you know, expect a real man would be someone who would go and, you know, do something dangerous or adventurous. So Ed Malone decides to take up uh, the first dangerous adventure that comes his way to try and impress her. So, again, not hugely, um, not, not great from a gender point of view. Doyle wasn't very interested in writing women and he's not known for having a lot of strong female characters. But on the other hand, you know, while... This attitude is is kind of satirized a little bit at the beginning. It does turn out that going on this adventure is a wonderful, fantastic, positive thing for Malone. So on the other hand, he is playing the adventure trope very straight as well. Uh, Malone gets in touch, or is put in touch, with the infamous Professor Challenger. Now, I think Conan Doyle was probably a bit more interested in this character, Professor Challenger, than the public generally remembers. I mean, everybody knows that he was bored of writing Sherlock Holmes and tried to get away from him and, 
killed him off, hoping never to have to write about him again. But uh, Challenger was someone, like we, I said earlier, who, who got quite a few novels. Uh, Doyle got quite a few novels out of him. And he's never quite um, been in the public imagination the way Sherlock Holmes has. But I love Challenger. I think he's great. So he's a big, cantankerous bear of a man with a huge beard. He's incredibly intelligent and he's a professor of zoology who lives in London. And he's considered to be a bit of a crackpot by uh, a lot of his colleagues. And part of the reason is that even though he's a great zoologist and he, you know, he comes to conclusions nobody else can about the nature of of uh, zoology, he's just he's uh, where Sherlock Holmes is calm and collected and reasoning. Professor Challenger is boisterous and, and over the top and very thin skinned. He get, Everything makes him angry. He lashes out. He will physically attack people. He grabs them in a bear hug. When Malone first meets him, um, they get into a scuffle and he, he's so easily offended that he will just attack you if you say the wrong thing to him. So he's very proud, very thin skinned. Uh, he just happens in this case to be correct because he believes that somewhere in South America is a flat topped plateau where dinosaurs and other forms of prehistoric life still exist. And he has a map and artifacts left by a man who has already been to this place. And he's an American by the name of Maple White. Again, this whole colonial thing of, you know, going somewhere and giving it a name yourself based on something European and not caring about, or at least Western, and not caring about whether it has a name already, whether the people who live there might call it something. Very kind of classic uh, colonial era stuff. But again, as we'll see, um, his attitude towards the people who live there is is, is interesting. So that's um, Professor Challenger. Along for the ride also is a rival scientist by the name of Professor Summerlee, who's kind of dry and sarcastic and uh, doesn't agree with Professor Challenger. And he's kind of there to come along and, uh, well, challenge him, I suppose, and see whether or not <clears throat> what he has to say has any truth behind it. And the fourth character on the expedition is a very interesting guy by the name of Lo uh, Sir John Roxton. And he's a sort of a, a man-about-town playboy, uh, eligible bachelor. He's a, a man who's uh, infamous as a sportsman and a, a marksman and a hunter. And he's already spent some time in South America where he's kind of been a bit of a do-gooder because he's been fighting against uh, slave owners in South Africa. Basically, the whole um, the rubber trade is going on there. And uh, Roxton was sent, was sent out there some years earlier to basically go renegade and go out into the jungle and uh, kill these guys who were running these slave rings for uh, tapping the rubber trees. So we'll get to the inspirations for this character. One of them is well known, the other one slightly less well known depending on uh, where you're from, but all all in good time. So that's the, 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 the they, they go to Maple White Land, they discover indeed that there are dinosaurs there. There are also other types of prehistoric life, including ape men. And then we get the most colonial sort of subplot, which is that there is a group of sort of local South American Indians, for want of a better phrase, living on the plateau. Uh, and they are being menaced by a, a race of subhuman ape men. And the Europeans, the, the Brits, decide to basically wipe out this tribe of ape men. So, yeah, your, your classic colonial era undertones or <laughs> overtones, I suppose... And that's definitely the stickiest wicket in the whole book, to use a uh, an Edwardian phrase. 
but we'll get to it and, and, and all things in time. We'll see how exactly Doyle handles this. Is he amongst the worst offenders of uh, writers during this period? Or is he a little more nuanced in the way that, um, let's say, H.R. Haggard would be? Right, so, 1912, Arthur Conan Doyle writes his classic classic novel, and it's a time of adventure and discovery. So, things that people would have been aware of at this time that would have been big news, uh, even just a few decades earlier, a lot of what was popular with stories of travel, adventure, and discovery. So you have people like Schliemann discovering the site which we now reckon to be Troy in about 1871, um, and that was, of course, in Turkey. The same year, actually, you have the first Europeans doing a proper um, scientific uh, rundown on the site at Great Zimbabwe. So all it's a time when archaeology is very popular because all of these great sites are being uncovered. Future editing key in here. Uh, somehow I forgot to mention also the discovery or rediscovery of the famous Machu Picchu uh, in Peru by Hiram Bingham, which was 1911, uh, a lot closer to the publication of The Lost World than the other examples here. Now, we get into the whole, you know, does it count? You know, we, we tend to say, oh, this was discovered in this year. And that uh, usually what we mean is, well, that was when, you know, Western people started paying attention to it. But the fact is that this stuff was being written about in the Western world for the first time. Uh, And it was a time when a lot of this stuff was popular in real life, but also in fiction. So sort of adventure fiction was really taking off. You have Treasure Island in 1883, which um, doesn't exactly have the... Well, it has the... I guess it has the exotic destination sort of side of things. I wouldn't exactly call it a story of a discovery. But... Uh, one H.R. Haggard, supposedly in a bet, um, he, he basically says, I could write something like Treasure Island, and uh, he's given a certain amount of time to do it. And he comes up with King Solomon's Mines, uh, which is published in 1885. So this is about the famous Alan Quatermain, who heads uh, into a hitherto unknown secret country somewhere in East Africa, and he meets a tribe called the Kukwanas in, in a location that he calls uh, Kukwana Land. So um, Haggard is an interesting one. His attitude towards native peoples and, and Africa in general is more nuanced than not, I, I will cautiously say. Um, for everything that he says, which would be quite considered quite repulsive to us today, he will then say something um, that shows him to be a little more thoughtful than the average writer of his day. I, I'll say this, it gets a lot, lot worse than H.R. Haggard. He has an inherent respect for the African characters that he portrays. Um, He was someone who had spent time in Africa himself. He was actually involved in in the military manoeuvres when the British were taking some territory over from the the Boers and the the Dutch in in South Africa. So he knew, to some degree, he knew what he was talking about, but he had a a sort of a sympathetic take on, on on the Africans. One important thing he does is that he doesn't paint them all with the same brush. And he has his characters like Quatermain say that, you know, when you, when you get to know the tribes, they do have different characteristics. When you get to know the individuals from the tribes, they also have their own characteristics. So he is likely to have some African characters who behave in a way that's, you know, uh, cowardly or, um, you know, scheming or untrustworthy. But then he'll have another African character who is um, intelligent and independent and, again, never 
to the level that we would hope for now, but for a guy who was literally involved in the actual colonial project, um, he's more interesting than most. How, having said that, King Solomon's Mines, though a huge, huge, huge influence on all adventure literature that followed, is far from my favourite uh, Haggard, because uh, two years later he wrote a novel called She, which I think is way more interesting. I think it's far more nuanced again. You get into uh, some more slightly questionable gender stuff this time. Basically, um, his characters, who don't include Quatermain this time, travel to another secret kingdom somewhere in Africa. I think somewhere about where Uganda would be now if you were to follow the directions he gives. And he meets, say, a tribe called the Amahagger. And um, there, it, it, I, I think it's a better written book. Um, I think the sort of racial stuff is more, perhaps more questionable here because you have the old trope of um, a native tribe worshipping a white woman in this case. It is more complicated than that when you get into the book, but ultimately that is what's going on at the back end of it. But if you can get through that, um, it's a really interesting story and it's got lots of great stuff in it. So there you have kind of the mid to late 1880s, the lost race template being thrown down. There are precursors to this, but I think that Haggard really was the main person doing the heavy lifting of kind of kicking this genre into shape. And there was a huge interest in Africa and other quote-unquote exotic locations um, to set your adventures in. Now, amongst the other things that um, Doyle would have been taking his influence from, it's, it's usually mentioned that he was interested in the career of one Percy Fawcett. Now, Fawcett, if you don't know him, uh, he was in the... He's the main character of the book and film The Lost City of Z, if you caught that one. Uh, so he was he's considered sometimes to be, have been perhaps the last of the great Victorian explorers because while he didn't really do his main exploring things that he was famous for until the 1920s, he, he was quite old. He was in his late 50s by that point. So he did most of his training and uh, during the Victorian period and he was absolutely a product of that time. So he's infamous for disappearing into the Amazon at a place called Mato Grosso in 1925 and was never seen again. He was... Uh, by his own account, he was searching for something that he called The Lost City of Z, which is the name of the recent-ish book about him by David Gran. I think it's 2008 or nine, 2009. I've got my copy here. <clears throat> I sort of recommend it. Um, if, you, if you feel like I do, uh, 2009 feels like about 50 years ago in real time. And uh, reading stuff from then, you know, I enjoyed it very much at the time and, and reading it now feels very strange. The world has changed very quickly in the time since. What we expect from analysis of stories has changed a lot. And in some ways, uh, this book feels more like The Lost World <laughs> or feels closer to The Lost World than uh, books written about this stuff now. I'm not saying it's tremendously offensive or anything like that. Just it, it takes a few elements of the sort of white guy having adventures in, in, in the tropics it takes that uh, archetype a little bit straight-faced. Also, Gran is, is not an archaeologist, and some of the conclusions he comes to about the, the potentiality of a quote-unquote lost city in the Amazon towards the end of the book, I suspect or any real archaeologist would find it uh, a bit simplistic, but no, I, I am not an archaeologist either, so not too much I can say about that. It is enjoyable. Uh, I do recommend it uh, with a small amount of caution. 
So here's a quote from um, the, what's called the Herald Express from 1998 um, by a fellow called Paul James, um, just about uh, Percy Fawcett and what he was doing prior to his disappearance in 1925, which may have given Arthur Conan Doyle some ideas. So Paul James writes, Between 1906 and 1910, Fawcett undertook a survey expedition to the borderland between Bolivia and Brazil. On the 13th of February 1911, he visited the Royal Geographical Society in London and delivered a lecture entitled Further Exploration in Bolivia to an audience that appears to have included Arthur Conan Doyle. During this meeting, Fawcett mentioned his 1908 trip to the Ricardo Franco Falls in Brazil. These remarks evidently impressed Arthur Conan Doyle because Fawcett later wrote the following related comments in his posthumously published memoirs entitled Exploration Fawcett. Uh, which were eventually published in 1953. So on page 122 of that volume, he uh, Fawcett writes, Monsters from the dawn of man's existence might still roam these heights unchallenged, imprisoned and protected by unscalable cliffs. So thought Con Conan Doyle, when later in London I spoke of these hills and showed photographs of them. He mentioned an idea for a novel on Central South America and asked for information which I told him I should be glad to supply. The fruit of it was his Lost World in 1912, appearing as a serial in the Strand magazine, and subsequently in the form of a book that achieved widespread popularity. So here we have Fawcett claiming, uh, after the fact, that he was not only uh, friendly with Doyle, or at least had corresponded with him, <clears throat> but uh, that he gave Doyle uh, some of the ideas for this novel. Now, the geographical features he's mentioning are real-life flat-topped hills in parts of the Amazon, which we will talk about. But it's interesting to me here that increasingly when you look into this stuff, you find fact and fiction intermingling. So, in the notes at the back of The Lost City of Z by David Gran, he says, There is little known about the origins of the relationship between Percy Fawcett and, Co and Conan Doyle. Exploration Fawcett that's uh, Fawcett's book, notes that Conan Doyle had attended one of Fawcett's lectures delivered before the Royal Geographical Society. We've already heard that. Once in a letter to Conan Doyle, Fawcett remembered how the author had tried to contact him during the writing of The Last World. But because Fawcett was off in the jungle, Nina, that's his wife, had been forced to respond. In The Annotated Lost World, published in 1996, Roy Pilot and Alvin Rodin point out that Fawcett was, quote, well known to Conan Doyle, unquote, and catalogue the many similarities between Fawcett and the novel's fictional explorer, John Roxton. Interestingly, Percy Fawcett may not have been the only member of his family to influence Conan Doyle's famous literary work. In 1894, nearly two decades before Conan Doyle came out with The Lost World, Fawcett's brother, Edward, uh, published Swallowed by an Earthquake, a novel that similarly tells of men discovering a hidden world of prehistoric dinosaurs. In an article in the British Heritage in 1985, Edward Fawcett's literary executor and the author Robert K.G. Temple accused Conan Doyle of borrowing shamelessly from Edward's now largely forgotten novel. So that's pretty interesting. Now I have in the past, attempted to try and get a copy of 
swallowed by an earthquake or I find a, an online version of it. I have not been successful uh, at this point. Uh, I would be interested to read it. I'd have come across another book that was written by um, Fawcett's brother and it was called something like Desert Adventure. It had a wonderful, it has one of those wonderful Victorian era soft covers with uh, with the um, a leather on the on the front and the embossed picture of a a guy wearing khaki and a pith helmet, um, descending down a rope, escaping from some sort of uh, Arabian Nights type uh, Middle Eastern palace. So it looks brilliant, and yeah, I would absolutely love to read Swallowed by an Earthquake, but yeah, not been able to get a hold of that one yet. Just interesting how these characters all knew each other. Um, incidentally, uh, Doyle also, or Fawcett rather, Fa Fawcett also had a connection with Haggard. And it's said that um, Haggard gave him uh, some sort of artifact from his travels that he kept on his desk when he was writing as well. Now, it's interesting to compare some of these guys. Fawcett had always been a guy with a bit of a touch for the mystical. He had a lot of, he was into theosophy and stuff that I think we would now recognise as being a little bit new age. I think that's probably the term we might use for him. He got into Eastern Eastern mysticism and Eastern religion. Earlier in his career, he'd worked um, in Sri Lanka and he took up some of the religious ideas that he came across there. He also did a lot of uh, amateur ar archaeology. But interestingly, both Fawcett and Doyle turned to spiritualism after the First World War. Uh, Fawcett fought in the trenches, actually, despite being a little bit older than you'd expect. Doyle tried to, but was told he flat out that he was too old. So instead, he went around um, to different countries, lecturing and uh, drumming up support for the British Empire and the British forces during that time of crisis. Now, we've mentioned here that Fawcett and his adventures were not only an inspiration for the, the plateau in the Lost World where the dinosaurs live, and those real-life... Uh, flat top mountains where uh, Fawcett was exploring but also that Fawcett may have been an inspiration for the character of Lord John Roxton. Now this is something that is is often mentioned but I'm going to talk a bit more about the other real life person who influenced Roxton. Roxton of course was the sort of playboy um, sportsman man about town who, who goes on the adventure. Now Roxton as well as being influenced by Fawcett was influenced by a guy called Roger Casement, which if you are British, you probably know Roger Casement as a guy who went to South America and wrote reports about um, the cruelty of the rubber barons there and uh, did a little bit, did quite some good work there to, to shut down that whole problem. Uh, he also went to the Congo and did reports on the atrocities that were happening there under the Belgians. And again, was made a big hero in Britain for exposing the crimes of these empires in, in these far-flung parts of the world. Uh, so I think this is what Conan Doyle would have had in mind when he was writing this character. He thought, well, here's a guy who goes to these troubled parts of the world and exposes these atrocities done by these evil empires. And, uh, you know, Doyle would have seen that as pretty much an all-round stand-up thing for a, a British guy to do. But... Roger Casement wasn't really British, even though he was a British diplomat. He was Irish, and over the course of his career, he came to see himself as an Irish patriot. So by the time 1916 and the, the Irish Easter Rising against the British Empire came around, um, again, I, I suspect that not a lot of British people are familiar with the story, but Irish people certainly are. 
where uh, in Ireland Roger Casement is, is a bit of a hero, but he was basically smuggling. By the time the, the, this attempted revolution happened in 1916, Casement was smuggling arms from a, a German ship called the Odd, which came into Kerry um, with lots of weapons that were supposed to help the Irish rising. And very famously, it all went to pot. The, the British had spies everywhere. They knew what was going on. Casement was arrested and eventually executed. The ship got scuttled in Cork Harbour and um, the whole thing didn't turn out the way it was intended to. So it's interesting to read The Lost World and see uh, Doyle's description of Roxton as Casement. You know, here's a guy who goes around the world and exposes the evils of these empires. But I have a feeling Conan Doyle would not have been so hot on him exposing the evils of the British Empire, shall we say. But we, we don't know because uh, he never wrote about him after that point. As far as I know, anyway. Now, another possible influence on the location. We don't know this for sure, but I find uh, find this pretty interesting. This is from about a fellow called Frank Reed. Now, Frank Reed was a fictional character in sort of American, like pre-pulp magazines and stuff, like little, almost like chapbook magazines, but sort of trashy pseudo science fiction literature from a, from a subgenre known as the Edison Aids because uh, they tended to use electricity and um, they tended to be inventors and they often built machines or airships and then traveled in them and had adventures and they were often incredibly racist so they're not very well remembered today but yeah named after uh, Thomas Edison obviously who would have been a big hero in America at this time they're sort of like a weird American parallel to the European colonial era adventure stories so here's a quote <clears throat> about uh, Frank Reed and some of his books it says in the United States however Roraima, which is uh, the name of one of the flat-topped uh, Venezuelan mountains, which um, which Fawcett had already mentioned, in addition to a great deal of newspaper coverage, received attention in two short novels, Adventures of Frank Reed Jr., the dime novel Boy Inventor, published during the height of the Venezuelan crisis, in Along the Orinoco by No Name uh, in 1896, Frank and his friend Professor Peregrine discuss Ray Rama, which they believe contains mighty treasures, valuable gold claims, awaiting the magic touch of civilization. Peregrine adds, on the mighty elevated plateaus with sides so precipitous that man could not scale them, there might exist forms of animal life which may have been extinct in other parts of the world. He also writes, in the second Frank Reed story about Rorema, the island in the air, from 1896, no name, soliloquizes about the wonders of Rarema, describing its potential mineral wealth, its bad reputation among the natives as an abode of evil supernatural powers, and its possibility as a refuge. It seemed not beyond the range of possibility that this plateau, probably beyond the reach of that destroying genius, man, yet held forms of flora and fauna peculiar to a past age. Perhaps the megathermi yet found a home there, or the ichthyosaurus, or the plesiosaurus, or some other outlandish and unknown creatures. So, interesting stuff. We have no reason to believe that Conan Doyle read these American dime novels, but, I mean, some of them were reprinted in the UK at a later date, and it's just interesting to see another sort of a pulp story writer 
um, taking the same location and placing uh, placing prehistoric creatures there. So just just an interesting little aside, really, I, I guess. Now, I'm going to mention something about the location. So Maple White Land, in in the uh, in the Lost World, um, I remember reading years ago a weird theory that Conan Doyle had based it on um, a part of England, like an English county. And I had to do some research today to find out where that story came from and whether there was any credence to it. So what I discovered was, uh, well, Conan Doyle has always been one of the slightly more far out there uh, potential culprits in the Piltdown Man thing. So if you don't know the Piltdown Man story, in, in 1912, a fellow named Charles Dawson started pulling these fossil skulls out of the ground um, and they were some of the earliest, they, they were claimed to have been some of the earliest known fossils and what they had was a fairly human-like cranium with a more ape-like jaw, almost like an orangutan-like jaw. And the idea was, at that time, the understanding of evolution was such that people were thinking, well, you know, if, if mankind has evolved from ape-like ancestors, then surely our brains are the most important part, that's what separates us from the animals, so surely the the advanced cranium evolved first. So they were kind of expecting to find, a, 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 for want of a better term, a missing link, which, as a, a zoologist, I'm, I'm loath to use that phrase. It doesn't really make a lot of sense if you understand evolution correctly. But the idea was that they would, they looked hard enough, they would find uh, a, a, an animal that had the brain of a man but had otherwise more ape-like um, uh, physiological features, showing that the brain must have evolved first because that's what makes us special and different from, from the other animals. It's hard not to see this as a kind of a hangover from the, the pre-Darwin days. You know, the idea, well, if we're not special and different and created uniquely by God, then, well, at least we are the most important thing in evolution and our brains are the most important part. So they were kind of expecting to find something along these lines. Secondarily, there was a bit of a nationalist agenda also. All of the ancient pro-humans pro had been found in kind of far-flung parts of the world, uh, Africa and, and, and Central Asia and, and the Far East. And I think the, the Europeans and the British in particular were probably hoping that they would find one closer to home. Uh, one of the newspapers from that time has a headline that was something like, you know, the, the earliest man found, and he's an Englishman. I can only imagine that certain parts of the British public were, were very pleased with this. It was eventually outed as a hoax. It was indeed nothing more than a human skull with a uh, an orangutan jaw. The prime culprit has always been suspected to be Charles Dawson himself. The, the reasons for that are more complex than we need to get into here, but people have always pointed to Conan Doyle as a potential alternative perpetrator. It, it's always been a bit ridiculous to me. I think it's... He was in England at that time. It was the right time. He was interested in prehistoric life. Um, there's not a whole lot to it, to be honest. But uh, I found a write-up on this case, which ties it into the whole Maple Whiteland thing. And it's a, it's a correction on this story from the, the wonderful Darren Nash from the Ted Zoo, uh, Tetrapod Zoology uh, blog and podcast, which I heavily recommend. So... He mentions uh, these two guys, Winslow and Meyer, who wrote a book fingering Conan Doyle as the Piltdown suspect. And he says, also part of Winslow and Meyer's case was their claim that Doyle's map of Maple Whiteland is, cough, clearly 
based on the Weald, which is a region in England. And this is from their book of 1983. Maple White Land had a lake in the middle, a river running north-south in its southern half, an iguanodon glade to the east of the river, a place where giant deer were seen in the west, a precarious pinnacle of ascent in the south, and a place where a battle occurred in the east. Darren Nage then goes on to show, he compares a map of Maple Whiteland from the book to the Weald and uh, shows how these guys, Winslow and Meyer in 1983, tried to make connections between the two, but it's pretty, it's pretty thin. So this sort of conspiracy theory that Doyle had hidden clues about the Piltdown hoax in the geography of Maple Whiteland in The Lost World is just hilarious and I, I just wanted to mention that. Another element that we need to talk about is that the the Lost World, of course, has a strong element of cryptozoology running through it. So we can't we can't talk about it without talking about cryptozoology. It's depending on who you talk to. It's it's the study of unknown or hidden animals. Uh, I think to the layperson, it's people who study Bigfoot and the Loch Ness monster and stuff like that. So. That that term didn't exist in 1912, but there were writers doing things at that time that I think we might today consider to be cryptozoology. And there were real cases, there were actual happenings that afterwards proponents of cryptozoology would point to and say, look, there is proof that animals known only from myth do sometimes turn out to be real. So which of these might have been floating around in the subconscious of Mr. Doyle circa 1912? Well, very famously in 1901, an animal called the Okapi was, uh, I won't say discovered, but, you know, first brought into the light of Western science by um, a regional governor named Sir Harry Johnson in what's now Uganda, which would have been a British colony at the time. The Okapi is a... sort of looks like a deer and it sort of looks like a zebra. It's got a black and white stripy rear hindquarters. And um, I believe it was the symbol of one of the mid-20th century cryptozoological associations or possibly the one started by Roy Mackle in the 1980s. But yeah, it's it's because it was an animal that was known amongst the natives and there'd been a few stories about it. And then the, the Western people found a, uh, you know, found proof of it. People who are proponents of cryptozoology like to point to it, and uh, it's a bit of a flag, bit of a flagpole for them. Then in 1902, the the upland mountain gorilla was formally discovered um, in what was then German East Africa, what's now Rwanda. It was pretty interesting. I mean, it it there had been sightings, there had been reports, it had been known for about 50 years, but it hadn't been properly. Um, categorized and uh, and kind of there was no type specimen if you like so this was in a region called Virunga which is a very evocative name that means a lonely mountain that reaches the clouds and the fellow who discovered it was uh, one Captain Robert von Beringer I, I don't know how to say that properly so here's a little quote from his adventures um, from a website called the Mountain Gorilla Conservation Fund so he wrote from October 16th to 18th Senior physician Dr. England and I, together with only a few Askiris and the absolutely necessary baggage, attempted to climb the so far unknown Karunga Yesabinho, which, according to my estimation, must have been a height of 3,330 metres. At the end of the first day, we camped on a plateau at a height of 2,500 metres. The natives climbed up to our campsite, 
to generously supply us with food. We left our camp on October 17th, taking with us a tent, eight loads of water, five Ascaris and porters as necessary. After four and a half hours of tracking, we reached a height of 3,100 metres and tracked through bamboo forest. Although using elephant trails for most of the way, we encountered much undergrowth which had to be cut before we could pass. After two hours, we reached a stony area with vegetation consisting mainly of blackberry and blueberry bushes. Step by step, we noticed the vegetation becoming poorer and poorer. The ascent became steeper and steeper. Uh, from our campsite, we were able to watch a herd of big black monkeys, which tried to climb the crest of the volcano. We succeeded in killing two of these animals, and with a rumbling noise, they tumbled into a ravine, which had its opening in a northeasterly direction. So you can see that this is real life stuff, and um, this really happened, but it, it really mirrors the sort of adventure tales that were being told in fiction around about at the same time. Now, so far, in, we've been talking about real animals, but here's where it gets cryptozoological. So, along comes a guy named Carl Hagenbach, and in 1909, he writes a book called Beasts and Men, being Carl Hagenbach's experiences for half a century among wild animals. Hagenbach seems to have been a fellow who went out into wild places to uh, collect animals for zoos and circuses and things like that. So, in one chapter in his book, he, he he's trying to uh, kind of prep you for believing in <clears throat> mysterious or crazy creatures. And he does this by referencing uh, the discovery of the ancient giant sloth bones from South America, which would have been recent at the time, and the Okapi, once again. And then he writes, Some years ago, I received reports from two quite distinct sources of the existence of an immense and wholly unknown animal said to inhabit the interior of Rhodesia. Almost identical stories reached me, firstly, through one of my own travellers, and secondly, through an English gentleman who had been shooting big game in Central Africa. The reports were thus quite independent of each other, and, as a matter of fact, the Englishman and my traveller had made their way into Rhodesia from opposite directions, the one from the northeast and the other from the southwest. The natives, it seemed, had told both my informants that in the depth of the great swamps there dwelt a huge monster, half elephant, half dragon. This, however, is not the only evidence for the existence of the animal. It is now several decades ago since Menges, who is of course perfectly reliable, heard a precisely similar story from the Negroes, and still more remarkable, on the walls of certain caverns in Central Africa, there are to be found actual drawings of this strange creature. From what I have heard of the animal, it seems to me that it can only be some kind of dinosaur, seemingly akin to the Brontosaurus. As the stories come from so many different sources, and all tend to substantiate each other, I am almost convinced that some such reptile must be still in existence. At great expense, therefore, I sent out an expedition to find the monster, but unfortunately they were compelled to return home without having proved anything either one way or the other. In the part of Africa where the animal is said to exist, there are enormous swamps, hundreds of square miles in extent, and my travellers were laid low with very severe attacks of fever. Moreover, that region is infested by bloodthirsty savages who repeatedly attacked the expedition and hindered its advance. 
Notwithstanding this failure, I have not relinquished the hope of being able to present science with indisputable evidence of the existence of the monster. And perhaps if I succeed in this enterprise, naturalists all the world over will be roused to hunt vigorously for other unknown animals. For if this prodigious dinosaur, which is supposed to have been extinct for hundreds of thousands of years, be still in existence, what other wonders may not be brought to light? So, that's Carl Hagenbeck. So here you have, three years before The Lost World, a supposedly real, you know, account of an actual living dinosaur in Africa. Now, he's talking about Rhodesia. Uh, eventually, this this morphs into the legend of what becomes known as Mokil Membe, which is tied to the Congo instead, but it's it's clearly a different version of the same legend. It was eventually taken up by kind of cryptozoological people like Bernard Heuvelmans, and then in the 1980s, Roy Mackle went looking for it and kind of popularised it. But again, I, I we have no evidence that Doyle read this, but, you know, this stuff is in the ether. It's the age of exploration, and back and forth, back and forth between fiction and what's supposed to be reality, these ideas are cropping up and, you know, starting with real animals, uh, starting with real archaeology, now we're into the land of, you know, lost race, lost world, lost dinosaurs, and it's kind of all starting to come together. Now, to return to um, Darren Nash again, I did meet Darren once uh, a couple of years ago at a London Zoological Society talk in London and um, had a beer afterwards. He's, he's a nice guy. But I, I do mention him fairly often because, it, in my opinion, he's one of the guys doing the best work on cryptozoology. He's one of the more informed people. He's a proper, he's a sort of paleontological in his in his leanings, but he knows what he's talking about. And his book, uh, Hunting Monsters, from 2016 or 17, depending on your edition, is, is highly recommended. So in that book, he says about the Mokila Membe, the supposed African dinosaur. However, there's an alternative cultural and sociological perspective. Hagenbeck was almost certainly taking advantage of an early 20th century dinosaur craze that was sweeping the globe at the time. Thanks to paleontological discoveries made in the western interior of the United States during the late 1800s, the museums of the day were racing to obtain and install complete skeletons of Diplodocus, Brontosaurus, Apatosaurus and their relatives. Huge fanfare and public interest surrounded the display of these dinosaurs, the very first of which were mounted in New York and London in 1905. Interest in fossil sauropods fueled interest and excitement in potential living ones, hardly the first time that such a pattern of association had occurred. Now, firstly, I can't believe I said Diplodocus instead of Diplodocus, which is how I would nat naturally say it. Uh, secondly, yeah, one of one of Nash's themes in his book is that whenever sort of there have been new discoveries in paleontology, uh, people start to become interested in those animals and they start to interpret sightings of weird things in that light. So he he reckons that you know when plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs were popular and were current, uh, people started reporting sea serpents that looked a bit like them. So that yeah, that's one theme that runs. Uh, through his book. Now, The Lost World in 1912 is not the only time that Doyle kind of flirts with what we might now call cryptozoology himself in fiction. 
So in 1910, he wrote a short story called The Terror of Blue John Gap, which is about a, a creature that lives in under the ground in England in so, sort of soft limestone caves. It's not one of my favourites, but it does show that he had an interest in in these potential sort of creatures. Uh, but he also wrote The Horror of the Heights in 1913, which is absolutely one of my favourite Conan Doyle short stories. It's about a guy who's an aviator in a, what he calls a monoplane. Uh, he goes up higher than anyone has ever gone before and discovers like an entire ecosystem of weird unknown animals that live on the upper atmosphere of the earth um, and some of them are like giant balloon-like um, jellyfish creatures uh, other ones are kind of smaller faster more carnivorous creatures it's wonderfully evocative wonderfully uh, creative it's one of those stories that can only have been written you know before we know what we know i, I have a real love for science fiction stories that were overtaken by reality like nobody today could write a story where you discover an unknown set of animals that live just a little bit higher than we do but in those days it was all still up in the air sorry <laughs> so yeah, Doyle clearly had an interest in in cryptozoology so to speak there was something of a trend at that time for writing like weird crypto encounter fiction short stories where you know, the the point of the story was an encounter with a, an unknown creature and that's it. Nothing else really happens, you know. So H.G. Uh, Wells wrote a short story called In the Avu Observatory in 1894 about a guy in an observatory in Borneo in a remote location on top of a mountain in the jungle who has a, a tussle with what appears to be a living pterosaur. So again, you've, you've got this notion of ancient beings that are still alive in, in some remote part of the world. Again, I don't know that Conan Doyle read this, but H.G. Wells was, was huge. He was everywhere. Well, yeah, 1894. The, the very next year, the time machine came out, so he was about to become big news if he wasn't already. Um, I've got to mention Journey to the Centre of the Earth just as an earlier example of quote-unquote dinosaur fiction. It has the only... The only bit really relevant to our purposes here is the, the battle under the sea between the Ichthyosaurus and the Plesiosaurus. Journey is a, is a fantastic book. It's one of my favourite adventure stories ever. Vern is a bit of a tough, tough read. He's harder to get into than Conan Doyle or H.G. Wells. Um, but it, it's worth, if you get proper translations of him from the French, it's worth doing. And Journey is one of my absolute favourites. It's incredible. His restraint in, in it is incredible. Um, he spends, like, he, he sets up this interior world sort of hollow earth scenario where he's got prehistoric creatures and there are, like, primitive, ca you know, cavemen or ape men, And then he only gives you one or two encounters with them. And the rest of the time he just goes nuts on all of the geology because <laughs> that's what he wants to lecture you about. So great restraint. Either great restraint by Vern or, you know, just letting, letting himself go to town uh, on the stuff that he really likes. Who knows? So... What did Arthur Conan Doyle actually know about dinosaurs when he wrote The Lost World? We know his primary source for uh, dinosaur information because he includes it in the book. It's called Extinct Animals by Edwin Ray Lancaster, who uh, seems to have been an acquaintance of Conan Doyle's in real, in real life. So um, from Google Reviews, we have a description of the book, which isn't credited, but it says... 
The book was one of Conan Doyle's primary sources for The Lost World. It was the only reference cited in the novel itself. In order to confirm Maple White's illustration of a Stegosaurus to an incredulous Malone, Challenger hands a copy of the book by his, quote, gifted friend, Ray Lancaster, unquote. Over the course of The Lost World's serialization, Lancaster and Conan Doyle carried on a correspondence. The former would even suggest prehistoric animals to populate the Lost Plateau. Fantastic stuff. And of course it goes without saying that the dinosaurs on the plateau in the book are not the sort of fast-moving, warm-blooded, bird-like uh, post-Jurassic Park dinosaurs that we know and love today. They are, of course, the Charles R. Knight sort of tail-dragging, uh, slow-moving... Well, maybe that's unfair. Knight did do some images of dinosaurs that were faster and more... that The famous Dryptosaur painting uh, comes to mind. But certainly at that time, most people were picturing dinosaurs as big, slow, swamp-dwelling and stupid. Uh, something which was to carry on into the way that the supposed African sauropod Mokil Membe was, was imagined way too, way too late, right up until the 1980s, honestly. They were thinking about it that way. But if you think about the the uh, water-going sauropod that attacks the sailors in King Kong in 1933, that's a pretty good example of it. So, we've talked about the influences on the plateau and the animals on it. A little bit more about the other characters. So, Professor Challenger himself, one of my favourite Conan Doyle characters, a big, blustery, angry uh, scientist, but a guy who knows what he's talking about. Uh, and uh, if you if you flatter him and get on his good side, he's uh, quite a likeable guy. There's a lot of good humour in The Lost World, and uh, I remember most of it dating or ageing relatively well. Perhaps when I do my reread this week, I'll think differently, but I always liked Challenger as a kid. So... He is a, a Scot, for all intents and purposes. He was from a town called Largs, near Glasgow. I've been to Largs. It's where you get the boat if you're going to the Isle of Cumbrae, um, which I went once on a university trip. Challenger is the president of the Zoological Institute in London. And uh, much as it is often said that Sherlock Holmes was based on a fellow called Bell, who was one of Conan Doyle's uh, lecturers or professors at university, Professor Challenger, uh, by those who were there at the time, often read his description and say that he must have been based on a fellow named William Rutherford, also who taught at the University of Edinburgh during Doyle's time there. I mentioned at the beginning that Challenger was later used in other books and that this has been unpopular with fans. That's largely because... In, in following books, Doyle uses Challenger as a mouthpiece for his own belief in spiritualism. So, as they say online, your mileage may vary. But, you know, we might get to those books. They have their... Some of them have their charms, and uh, definitely they have, they're an interesting thing to talk about. So that day may come. The other characters, Summer Lee and Malone... I don't know that they are based on anybody and I don't think those characters require them. They're sort of stock characters. Summerlee is just the dry, sarcastic, scientific foil for Challenger. Malone is the young, you know, alpha male hero who is the also the insert character for the reader. He's young, he's brash and brave but inexperienced so the, everything in the world is new and exciting to him. So 
you know, we see the adventure through his eyes and we travel with him and 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 that sort of thing. So I don't I don't know there's a whole lot to be said about them, apart from it's interesting to me that Malone is it's clearly made out that he's of an Irish background. I've said that Doyle's family had an Irish background if you go back a couple of generations. But also it was a bit of a shorthand amongst the British in those days for, well, several things. But if if they weren't depicting us as sort of knuckle-dragging gorilla-like uh, Fenians who wanted to blow everything up uh, in, in Punch magazine, they, the more positive take would be, that which Doyle would have had as someone who, who liked... Um, his, who was proud of his Irish heritage, they, the stereotype in another direction would have been that they were sort of dreamy and romantic. They had this sort of Celtic blood that uh, made them sort of sensitive. So some of that definitely uh, comes out in the book as well. And I think he means the Irish background in a positive way here. Uh, though, of course, you know, some may find it patronising. But, you know, when you're reading turn-of-the-century fiction, you've got to take a... Got to take these things uh, as you find them. You'll have noticed, of course, there are no women on the expedition. Wasn't really something Doyle was into writing about. Wasn't tremendously common anyway. At this time, you wouldn't expect many adventure stories to have uh, women come along. Even though there were, at this time, in reality, there were uh, female adventurers and uh, archaeologists having adventures as well. But they did. They didn't tend to get um, represented in fiction very frequently. This is something that does tend to get altered in film versions of the book, starting with the very first silent movie version of it in 1925. Now, the novel was first published in serialized form in the Strand magazine, uh, which is the magazine in which a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stories were ran, and it ran between April and November of 1912. At the time, it was accompanied by illustrations by the wonderful Harry Roundtree. I've been putting a few of these up on my Twitter account over the last few days. Uh, well, well, well worth a look. Really evocative. The the pictures of the plateau, the pictures of the stegosaurus, and um, the pictures of the the pterosaur, uh, the pterosaur nest. It, it, really wonderful stuff. And um, uh, some something I really like about this was. Conan Doyle went to the effort of producing maps and charts and photographs of the of the adventurers for this book to make it feel more real. Now, it's very clear that I don't, I don't think this was a kind of a hoax. Uh, it, I've seen it referred to as a quote-unquote ironic hoax because he had actors dress up as the characters and he himself put on a, a stupid-looking fake beard and eyebrows to make himself out as Professor Challenger. I think it's a fairly good-natured thing. I think he's just having a bit of fun with the format. I don't think it's an actual hoax hoax, and I don't think he expected anyone to believe that the book was real. But it's a wonderful example of the sort of the, the format that would have been popular at the time with, you know, like in Dracula and stuff, where novels were made up of uh, actual dispatches. So the, the conceit of the novel is that Malone is sending all these dispatches back to London to his editor at his newspaper, and... Uh, it just, you know, H.G. Wells does the same thing in, in War of the Worlds and, and Bram Stoker does the same thing in Dracula. So it was just a thing that was done at the time and it adds a certain realism to the story. But I don't believe Conan Doyle ever meant it as a, as a real hoax. But it is interesting to compare this sort of bit of theatrical showmanship with something he did when the film version came out. So in 19, to fast forward, 1925... A, a film version of The Lost World comes out 
with special effects done by one Willis O'Brien, who eventually was to, to do the special effects for King Kong, an incredibly important name in the in the history of special effects and filmmaking. And what he what he did was uh, he was a pioneer in uh, in stop motion photography, which something I did a lot of when I was a teenager. I, I must have been an incredibly patient teenager, but I, I was obsessed with Willis O'Brien and uh, King Kong and uh, the, the early Lost World film. So yeah, I suppose stop motion photography looks a bit janky to us now, but nobody could ever have seen something like this back in the 20s. So Conan Doyle gave a special screening of the film for a, a prof- group of professional magicians in New York. And supposedly they were all mystified by how the dinosaurs were created. And Doyle refused to tell them how it was done. And he said that he uh, he, he was being a little bit cagey, saying that uh, he used some mystical force to do it, but that the mystical force was psychic and came from the human imagination, which, you know, is, is kind of true. But he said that he, he gave them this wishy-washy explanation and he kept the whole thing mysterious as he said, to provide some mystification for those who had so successfully and so often mystified others, is how I remember that particular quote. So clearly a guy who enjoyed a bit of showmanship and didn't mind uh, keeping his tricks uh, behind the curtain, perhaps. So coming to the end, that is uh, my section on all of the potential and actual (coughs) known and unknown sources and influences on Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 book, The Lost World. This has been an episode of White Atlantic Weird. If you like what you hear, please share episodes. You know what to do, all the usual places. Uh, Find us online and... uh, share an episode with someone who you think might like it. If you want to get in touch with us, best place to do so at the moment is Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland. We're always happy to get uh, requests for new episodes. If anything weird has ever happened to you, we'd love to know all about it. So stay safe and thanks for listening.